0: podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman.
1: Hello, fanboys and fangirls. You're listening to Episode 4, Issue 4. And today, we have a very special guest, but I have to tell a story to intro him. Let me take you back to the last week in August, 2003. August 24th, Aaron Broverman the fresh-faced, just graduated high school, coming to Toronto to attend Ryerson. So I leave my humble abode of Vancouver and come over, and before I start my studies, my favorite author and comic writer of all time, Neil Gaiman, is going to be in town, and I'm going to meet him at the chapters on uh, Richmond and John. So I'm on my way there, and who do I see? But a man named Sean Ward, who is our guest today, he was selling his homemade comics, the Sean Ward Electric Comics Freakout, on the street. So this makes him the very first person that I ever met in the city of Toronto coming from Surrey, British Columbia. And Sean is in here because he's sort of a jack of all trades. He does comics. He has his own Sean Ward show, which started out as these little get-togethers where he would MC and there would be bands and there would be animated shows happening. We used to go to the Cinecycle all the time, which was like this little tiny warehouse bike shop entertainment space. And uh, he worked on uh, Ed's Night Party for a while as a writer and producer. And now he's sort of a YouTube star. He's paying his rent through YouTube videos. He's the man behind Toronto Batman. I don't know if you've seen those videos, but it's just a Christian Bale-style Batman running around Toronto doing things, and Sean makes cameos as Commissioner Gordon, but he's also doing all the production on that. So please, welcome Sean Ward. Hello! Lovely to be here. (laughs) With an (laughs) intro
0: like that, how could it not be?
1: I, I'm so glad to get you in here. We, we go back a long time. I've lived here for 10 years already. So <laughs> so I've known you for 10 years. Oh, time flies. Yeah, yeah. So I guess where I wanted to start is growing up, what was the comic scene like in Toronto and how did you get into
0: comics? I didn't know anything about a comic scene in Toronto uh, as a kid. I didn't, didn't know anything about a comic scene really anywhere until I was in my late teens and started coming downtown on the subway to go to Silver Snail and stuff. Comics for me was like the thing that my dad picked up for me once in a while from the variety store or the gas station that had superheroes in it. And you know, I always loved the characters and the stories. so the culture for me was really just about me, my neighborhood, my friends uh, and my stack of uh, DC and Marvel. I didn't know anything about any kind of culture. Or, I mean you know it took a long time to even clue in that there was people that made these things. So when I actually found out that there was something called a comic book store, I begged my dad and just begged and begged and begged until he finally took us one day. I don't even remember the name of it. It was some ramshackle one. I remember it being very dark and looking a little more like, you know, what the non-initiated would kind of think of as the stereotypical comic store. Who knows if it's even there anymore? But uh, we only went the one time, never went back until i was a teenager and coming downtown on my own and going to silver snail and you know starting to get into collecting them on wednesdays got to give a shout out to actually to Vaughn's comics who even knows if it's there anymore but Vaughn's comics in scarborough that was my regular as a teenager that was your regular yes yeah, so I, li- I lived in scarborough for the first several years of high school and uh whenever it occurred to me not as often as i could i would put in my, my $0.50 cents bus fare and go down to Vaughn's Comics to get my new Spideys.
1: Pre-Scarborough, like where were you coming down from for that first shop experience that you described?
0: Well, it would have been from Scarborough when I was first taking the subway to go downtown, oh, okay. right? Because I've, I've lived all over the Toronto area, but always in the Toronto area. Right. So as a kid, I wouldn't have been going anywhere on my own except for just where I can go to on a bike. Yeah, yeah. So when I was old enough to actually start going places on my own, yeah, I lived in Scarborough at that time. So yeah. it would be Vaughn's yeah. Comics for the most part. And then a few years, you know, I got a little bit older and started trekking downtown, found out about this place called the Silver Snail. And Dragon Lady was on Queen Street at the time. And Third Quadrant was on Queen Street at the time. And yeah, I I just hit them all. Nice. So what attracted you to comics in the first place? Oh, man, I've been asked that question a lot over the years, and I love it. The fact that superheroes are the modern mythology. So I think even as a kid, I sort of connected with the fact that these stories are important for that reason. The fact that we are right now telling the stories that, you know, generations way down the line are going to look at the same way that we look at, you know, the Greek gods or Norse gods and stuff like that. So that's why these stories are so important. And, you know, a lot of people kind of treat them like they're, oh, they're just cartoons. Oh, they're just fancy stories. Oh, they're just make-believe. But what they represent and the themes that they represent are so big and so important that that's where it comes from for me why the utmost care has to be taken even by the people making the comic books, but also in guys like me doing stuff on YouTube. You know, we got this whole kind of remix culture online. I take that super seriously and how we portray the characters, even if you're doing it in in an unlicensed parody kind of fashion, there's still you have to have a responsibility to what the characters represent to the culture and to individual people. You know what I mean? So, to
1: you, what do they represent? I mean, these are morality tales. So, yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Like, the basic values of life? Well, sense? yeah.
0: How Batman, having no superpowers, represents the utmost, as far as you could possibly go with that notion of dedication to an ideal. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Superman represents a guy who is uh, so much, you know, I guess better would be the word, than everybody else, that the fact that he's super puts him above That whole issue of why doesn't he use his powers for evil or whatever? Because he doesn't need to. There's nothing to gain from that. Uh, Spider-Man, the classic, with great power comes great responsibility. You know what I'm saying? So each of the characters, I think the ones that catch on are the ones that do the best job of carving out a niche within that stratosphere of these different aspects of heroism and dedication and perseverance and that kind of thing, and the ones that get put out there that don't represent anything or don't catch on in that way they're not the ones that last definitely i I have to agree with that so what brought you
1: from being a fan reading these things to i want to create my own stuff and i want to you know self-publish and sell it on the street and uh And, you know, I think you were paying your rent a while, you know, doing those comics. Yeah,
0: I was eking out a fairly modest living. Well, because for me, I used to spend a lot of time... This is a Toronto-centric podcast, right? Yeah, Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to say a lot of people know this guy. He's a very controversial figure. But there was once a time when Reg Hart from the Cineforum on Bathurst Street was a very important figure in sort of... he, He loomed large in my legend, you could say. So when I was first living downtown on my own but wasn't yet, you know, an artist... I was just another, you know, young guy wasting time and going to work, telemarketing, retail warehouse, this kind of thing. But I discovered the Cineforum and the fact that there was that kind of thing, that there was this place where people could go with alternative ideas that are not in the mainstream and are not what your parents teach you about Mm -hmm. and this kind of thing. And he would open up his programs by telling stories about the people that made these movies that he's showing, right? This is a theater that shows silent films and old forgotten gems and stuff like that and so just the way that he modeled what he's doing on the idea of the french salon and the people that i met through there and the ideas that i encountered through there it gave me a particular idea about how one is supposed to live why did he teach you well just the idea about the big one was an artist is willing to starve for his art Mm -hmm. and when you go down that path you'll find that sometimes you're gonna have to but are you willing to? And, you know, starving or not starving, or however much money you have, there's a something to that idea of you're willing to risk it all and you're willing to settle for nothing less. And putting that up against my mom, always having told me that the people who make it in the world biggest are the ones who want it the most. Right. Mm-hmm. I sort of started doing the arithmetic on that. And through some weird way that it all added up, even though I eventually got to the point where you know, Cineform did its thing, and I started just kind of hearing the same stories again and again and realized that the student becomes the master sort of thing. I just got to a point where I decided I needed to apply that stuff. It was around that time when people experience what you hear in the culture called the quarter-life crisis. It just kicked in for me about how much time has gone by. I'm not a kid anymore. There's no getting any of this time that I've spent back. There's no do-overs. I hadn't gone to college or university or anything, right? So I just had this very overwhelming feeling that there was this path that I felt like I was on early in my life. And I kind of felt like, okay, I'm headed for X, Y, and Z, which is like to live this life of an artist, right? Yeah. Or professional, creative person, whatever. And so when I took stock of where I was at at the time with the girlfriend that I had and I was carrying some extra weight and I was working at a telemarketing place and always coming up like, you know, a dollar short and this kind of thing, it's just kind of like panic set in, I guess, what would now be called a quarter-life crisis. I was just like, OMG, I'm not on a road that leads me anywhere near where I've been saying my whole life I'm going. So what can I do to get moving in that direction? And just putting together my influences from hanging out at Cineform with Reg Hart and hanging out at the Beatlemania shop with Peter Miniachi. You used to hang- work at the Beatlemania shop. Oh, right? I sure did. That was great. He kept me going sort of through this little bit of a dry spell between leaving behind the telemarketing thing. But having all of these kind of great teachers that I encountered mm-hmm. put me on a path that led me to, um, you know, I've told the story a million times about... Um, having these photocopy comics that I was making in that fateful day that I just on a lark was waiting for a ride to pull up. And so just to be obnoxious, I was asking people, Hey, you want to buy a comic book? And a couple of people actually stopped and said, sure. So that actually gave me the idea that, Oh, oh my God, like, I want, this might be doable, right? I quickly did the arithmetic on how many I would need to sell to make the rent, broke it down day to day and went, I think I could do that today. It was like 10 or 15 or something. So then just immediately, day after day after day after day after day, can I go out and sell 15 of these things? Can I go out and sell 20 of these things? And so kept that up, and that got me prolific and got me busy and got me making content. And this is before there was YouTube, and blogging wasn't really a really big thing yet. It was sort of just starting up. But little by little, just from putting out content and kind of selling it on the strength of myself and kind of pushing it on a little bit of a cult of personality kind of level – I was able to, you know, build it up into something that got me discovered and working on TV and opened up a lot of opportunities for me. It was always about just this perhaps dogmatic, perhaps stubborn, perhaps bullheaded idea about if you're an artist, you're going to devote everything you got, resources, time, attention to your craft and nothing else will do. Right. And artistically, I always thought your style was
1: very like Beatles, Yellow Submarine animation-ish. Oh, I And you're, you're a guy who always put himself in his comics. I mean, it was the Sean Ward Electric like Comics recap. Yeah. So what are your, what are your artistic influences and what was the whole thing behind putting
0: yourself in basically everything that you do? Like you're, you're your own brand. It's very much this sort of looping the whole thing in on itself, like pop art. Right, especially when we got to where it wasn't just about making comics, but it was comics and it was the live events and it was the movies and it was the music. What it was all about was sort of like making myself the medium and expressing that in a variety of different ways. If that makes sense, you know what I'm saying so inspired by uh, there was a huge movement of autobiographical comics that was going on for a while there, and so I kind of saw what was going on there and went, well, I've got a unique spin on that, I think I've got somewhere new I could take this and trying to take it there bringing in these other influences from, you know, music and the education I gave myself in pop culture of Mm. previous decades. Yeah,
1: your autobiography wasn't an autobiography, it was, like, fantastical. It was, like, Sean Ward, you know, meets the Beatles, has all these crazy adventures,
0: there's the bunny... Uh, Right. So all of that kind of stuff fits together in a certain sort of way where it's like I never put anything in it that wasn't honest. And this is one thing that I was always really like firm with myself on and even hard on myself, you could say, was that even if I'm doing a fantastical story about being taken away up on an alien spaceship and all this kind of stuff, it's always riffing off of stuff that's actually happened and conversations that i would actually had with people. So there was always... Truth in it. And it was always about a truth, even if the details were, you know, blown up to cartoon proportion. Then you started
1: getting into like other media it started with the events of the Cinicycle. cycle you would be doing the mc you would invite other guests like the word burglar oh yeah to come and i guess people that bought your comics would come to the cine cycle for these live events these sean ward shows right right
0: right. yeah that was the whole thing about it was well i wanted to do like you know the whole thing of just releasing a new comic book it was always with a, a comic book the record whatever There was just always the motivation of like how do we just make it more pizzazzy and more fun and make it look like something huge is going on, right? Mm-hmm. So we would have the shows and the new comic book is there and we're going to unveil it at the stroke of 9 o'clock. People would come in and it's literally like on the table with a shroud over it and, you know, everybody's got their little ticket. Is just all about, on a business level, giving people value, right? They came for a show, so it's just always about how can I give them the best show?
1: So how did you get noticed and into... The whole And the sock City TV thing, because you were writing on that show for a while and, and producing it. Well, yeah, I worked for that, for that kind of show stuff. for the last two years that it was on the air, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did it graduate from just doing comics to television and other entertainment? Anime?
0: Oh, well, well, I had the idea. I'll be very candid with you here. I had the idea to try to pitch some kind of mainstream entertainment brand on letting me do their spinoff comic book. Right. Okay. So I reached out to Ed the Sock because I happened to be flipping channels on TV one night and caught a rerun. I'd been a fan since I was a little kid, you know, when I was a teenager or even a, like, you know, middle school age and it was on late at night on Rogers community TV. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I was a fan from back then and I was actually in the audience for the first set of tapings when he went over to, to city TV. I kind of, I used to tell the boss there the story. Uh, of how we have that connection that like me and my little cousin went to be in the audience. And there was actually some like question as to whether or not they were going to let us be in the audience because we were technically too young. (laughs) But they let us kind of just hang out up in the back corner and make sure there's no light on us. We're good. So having that sort of personal connection, I was able to do a little bit of fan art and send it in and say, you know, I just want to introduce myself, blah, blah, blah. Ended up actually getting to meet them and interact with them at a comic convention and then they started coming out to my shows and then it started like, you know, they'd offer me a freelance job here or there. Can you do this art first? Do you want to fix up our website? And just enough of that was going on that they ended up putting me on staff. And so that was, uh, all told, it was two years of working for them right up to and including that show being taken off the air. Yeah, I, I think. IP. I think really like I got
1: introduced to uh, Leanna and uh, the man behind Ed Steve Kirzner, at one of your shows. I think Steve met me at one of your launches at the Cinecycle. That, and that's where I met Che Lothari, who does that hip-hop music festival and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, you were a happening guy. You connected <laughs> me to a lot of other people, and, and I thank you for
0: that. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. And that's just one of the things that I've always been about, you know, kind of taking it back again to referencing these teachers that I had. Part of it is always connecting people and bringing people together and just trying to, you know, share ideas at the highest level we can.
1: Then I remember, if I remember correctly... Because I was at your sort of going away party. You took a break, and you were like an entertainer on a cruise ship. <laughs> Is that what
0: happened after
1: the whole Ed uh, the Sock thing? Yeah.
0: Um, well, I'll, I'll speak very candidly with you about that. Okay. After the Ed the Sock thing happened, the show got taken off the air, and I sort of called it. But the way that I predicted it sort of rubbed the bosses the wrong way. That relationship sort of like took a hit because of that. But yeah. well, basically, that show got canceled, and it dovetailed with a lot of other stuff that was going on. Part of it was me not rising to challenges, part of it was me being overwhelmed, part of it was me taking off more than I could chew, basically from a music act I had put together and another act had come and snatched away one of our members and made off with our contact and then to a girl I was really into at the time and I just had this elaborate fantasy in my head about what that was going to be and the truth ended up being something else and my work situation and the fact that I had put two years of focus on that Ed the sock thing even though there was a lot of hard work there a lot of what I went there to do didn't get done Right. In mm. fact, that was part of the problem there, was this. there was a lot of things not moving as quick as we would have liked, so we didn't get to implement a lot of ideas, which meant that projects that I had on the go, that I had thought were going to go through that, and to be made even bigger, just ended up not going on. So I kind of came out of So it you and,
1: wanted to sort of use the sock as a vehicle for your own stuff that you were doing? That just didn't well,
0: happen. Not so much, they wanted to use it as a vehicle, more than just like, we had a lot of stuff that we were going to do together. Oh, okay. But the fact that they, you know, the husband-wife team at the core of that show, the, the guy was the executive producer and the head writer and the lead talent and the guy making all the phone calls they're doing absolutely everything there's only so many hours in a day so then there isn't time left over to devote to our comic book company that we're going to start and our online series we're going to launch and the tour that we're talking about and the primetime special that we've been wanting to work on you know what I'm saying so basically when the Ed the Sock thing finally ended up not working out I was at a point where I was kind of just feeling like my momentum's gone and all this kind of stuff and I basically like went crazy is what happened to be completely honest with you. And I got to a point with all the stuff that was going on and like my, my life was just in so many areas spiraling out of control at that time that I just like, I had to just leave. I had to just like go be somewhere where I didn't know anybody, I'd never been before and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't worldly, right? Like I'm just like a, a punk white trash kid from the wrong side of the tracks, barely flopped through high school, let alone didn't go to college or nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So what I was able to do on the streets and turn it into the gig TV and blah, 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 it all was a lot of fun, but I hadn't seen any of the world and I hadn't really gone anywhere outside of Toronto or really done much. So. Just to try to make myself a more interesting person, and to sort of just get a sense of what's out there. That's when I went to work on the cruise ship, just as an excuse to just get away from Canadian winter, because everything was piling up. Canadian winter on top of it all. That's the breaking point. I can't deal with that. So I just went away to like think and regroup and kind of plan and strategize, and then spent most of that next year in California. And then when I came back to Toronto after that, the world was a bit different, and social media was a thing now. And so it's been just jumping into that and. Now YouTube is like you know the thing that I'm having the most success with. All right, so let's get into that.
1: I mean, how did you get into producing your own stuff for YouTube? Did it start with the Toronto Batman thing, or is that just the most? Well, successful no, the Toronto Batman
0: thing is just one of many things okay. that's on my channel. Okay, right. So Toronto Batman is like one of, or was one of the recurring features. Okay. Because um, I remember that blowing up. Well, that was North, the thing yeah. that put it all on the map, okay. right? So basically from coming back from California and I did like vlogging every day, I was going to do it for a year, but I got up to like 260 something days mm-hmm. when it finally like broke. You know, I did this vlogging everyday project and I was doing a weekly webcomic for a while. But again, spread myself a little thin and not really focusing on any one thing. So putting content online on YouTube putting up the videos and stuff I was already doing a lot of that even going back to taking the little mini movies I was making for those live shows you were talking about putting those on YouTube after they've been world premiered at the live event so making comedy shorts to put online was nothing new to me in fact when we did that Batman one at the time I was like oh people are gonna like this if this one does 5,000 hits that'll be a big success because up to that point, my biggest seller on that channel was like three thousand.
1: And you met the guy in line at a, at the premiere of one of the Well, in Marvel line, films? yeah,
0: in line for the preview screening. They basically the December before the Dark Knight Rises came out, Warner Brothers did a thing where they had a contest and this whole elaborate thing to win your way into the theater to get a seat to see the first ten minutes of the movie. So there was a ten o'clock and a ten thirty. So he was in line for the 10.30 as I'm coming out of the 10 o'clock. He's in costume. He's in character. He's holding court. So I get my picture with him and, hey, we should talk. So I had him come to the studio I was working at the time. And we did a little video. I just interviewed him. Hey, what do you think of the Dark Knight Rises preview? And then, so he said, let's make shit Batman says. We went out. We shot it. We had the idea. Well, let's make it be its own thing. Let's not try to just capitalize on the trend. It's different enough that it can be its own thing. So, okay, well, then let's just give it a different title. I came up with Batman's Night Out as the title. Put it online late on a Friday afternoon. That was a big weekend because that was the weekend that I uploaded the video and I'm like watching it go and I'm like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Because I got to jump in a cab to get down to the ACC to make a little documentary film of Naughty by Nature performing the halftime at the Raptors game. I'm backstage with Vinny and Tretch and KG from Naughty by Nature at the Air Canada Center. How did you hook
1: up with them at the same time? Like, I feel like I'm missing
0: a little bit of Sean's (laughs) connection here. Social media was going on. So you'll always hear me talk about 2010 as Toronto's social media summer of love. It felt very much like my fanciful idea of what Swing in London 1967 was like and I even played it up to the point where I once had an idea for a movie called London 1967 that was about Paul McCartney, Andy Warhol, Twiggy and these guys but all on their phones and all on social media and it was a real mind meld of a movie. Who knows maybe it'll still happen one day but I called 2010 Toronto Social Media Summer of Love because there was very much this feeling of this thing is brand new, we don't know what it is yet but we know it's going to be something. So it turned into all business and cold and jockeying for position and people being competitive about it. But there was a brief moment where it felt very inclusive. And if you had a Twitter account and were at all active on it, that was enough to get you invited to all of these parties and events that the PR companies were throwing, sponsored by liquor companies and just giving away booze and prizes and this kind of thing. So your inbox started filling just because... Yeah, that's why I had to stop doing the vlogging project yeah, yeah. because, I, you know, it was successful in yeah, that yeah, I started yeah. getting work, and yeah, so I'm freelancing for tech companies, and I'm doing videos for yeah. PR companies. Because they're like, this guy actually knows how to do guerrilla marketing, yeah. and we don't know. We yeah. need the new, you. So just people. through the tech connections yeah. that I made, I got hooked up to Naughty by Nature through Be Notions, who was the company doing their app, their Android yeah. app. Me being down with them and running their experimental web TV studio at the time was what got me looped in on the email when the guy was like, yo, Naughty by Nature's in town and Vinny wants to have drinks with anybody from the office who wants to come. It was last minute. Nobody could make it except for me and that guy who was the connection to them. So me and Greg yeah. went out and we're having drinks. I'm sitting across from like one of my teenage idols, yeah. one of my heroes, Naughty by Nature, like before Wu-Tang, Naughty by Nature, like owned hip hop. Legends to this day that I'm having drinks with him. And he's like, oh, come with us across the street. We're doing a private gig at the ROM. So we went over with them and just talking to them and hanging out. I was like, well, hey, you're doing that thing at the ACC in February. Well, what if I come and shoot it and we'll get a fun little video for your YouTube channel? Take me back to that weekend where everything sort of blew up for you. Oh, like I was saying, so I uploaded Batman's Night Out in February 2012 and I'm backstage at the ACC checking my phone and Toronto Batman's at home refreshing the page and he's texting me he's like, oh, Paul Dini just tweeted it. Oh, some Batman fan group just tweeted it. Oh, it's on such and such blog. And and if you've
1: never seen it, it's essentially... Batman wandering around Toronto,
0: you know, doing the Christian Bale sort of thing, and right, you know, he's got the authentic-looking costume, and he does the voice pretty good. So he's basically walking around town, startling people, and doing the catchphrases and messing around with people in the subway and stuff. Yeah, it's silly, it's fun, but it's awesome, and people liked it. Yeah, yeah. So it did a million views in a week, and then there was a lot of trying to keep that rolling while also trying not to get carried away with it. Later that summer, we did Spider-Man versus Batman, which was an even bigger story, yeah. which is. Now the biggest thing on my channel, it just crossed over 7 million views. So the superhero stuff on my channel is obviously the biggest stuff.
1: There's this Toronto Costume Heroes cosplay group that sort of spun out
0: of it. Oh, it's, it's plural. Yeah, okay, you got Toronto Batman, and he's been trying for a long time to put together his Gotham North group. So yeah. he's got a bunch of people he's down with, the <laughs> X-Men of Toronto, basically every municipality in the region has their own Batman, Superman, there's Mississauga Agent Coulson, there's Aurora (laughs) Iron Man. Like, it has just turned
1: ridiculous. And these guys go out and do charity events. A lot of them do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the X-Men of Toronto, and respect due to my girl Rogue, she does the Northern Bell cosplay page. She actually spearheaded a lot of that. Toronto Batman Mm -hmm. is very happy to just put on the Batman costume, (laughs) do the posing for pictures Mm -hmm. of tourists thing, and maybe be in a video once in a while, but... That girl, Rogue, who does the Northern Bell page and who was the founder of X-Men of Toronto, she actually is the one who is the most active in terms of community engagement and charity work and stuff like that. Where is Sean Ward right now? I think that's how we're going to wrap it up. Well, right now, my dream and my goal is to blow the YouTube channel up. We're sitting on 33,000 subscribers right now. It's been huge. It's like the childhood dream come true in a big way. So I want to blow that up to 100,000 subscribers. If I could do that by the end of 2014, that would be a dream come true. If I can do 100,000 subscribers and a video every week this year, that's my big dream. That's my big goal. And my head is chaos because of it. There's comics I want to make and other things that I want to pursue and movie scripts I'm working on and other people that I'm trying to work with. And it's this battle within me to like how much attention to put on that or how much of it to push aside to just focus solely on this one big goal, which is the YouTube channel.
1: And it all started with comics. So how do you view yourself? What do you call yourself? Are you a comic artist? Are you a multimedia guy? Does it connect to the whole comic thing? How do we take this
0: back to comics and geekdom and that sort of thing? Oh, man, that's a great question. At the end of the day, the comics is the beating heart and the soul of my artistic vision. And even if it goes a long time without me making one, I'll always feel that way because comics for me is like the most effective means of communication to communicate like pure thought and pure intention. A lot of people compare comics to movies because they're both visual. But for me, my philosophy goes that actually comics has more in common with music, with the movements and the notes and the rising and the falling of the crescendos. I'm not a music scholar, so maybe I'm using the terminology wrong, but you get what I'm saying, right? Comics for me is more like music you take in through your eyes than it is like movies. And so on that level, comics for me is like this dreamscape sort of thing because it's telling these stories just with snapshots of these perfect moments that best represent it. So comics for me is telling a story using just those perfect moments and the audience has to fill in the rest of it in their imagination. So I feel like the potential is there for comics to be more engaging than any other medium. To take ideas that we present in comics, we can extrapolate them into movies and music in all these different forms, but comics is always the most effective means of getting what the heart of it is across and what it all means across. That's always the way it is for me. The dream for me is to take it to some place where I can do movies and music and YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff, but it's always about this cartoonist who is me or is based on me, all this stuff that's pouring out of his head is looping back into his real world and is he crazy or is he onto something who knows but as long as it's a good story for everybody then we're doing our job that's awesome sean well i want to thank you from
1: the bottom of my heart for coming in here i want to thank jeff grossman for producing i'll see you for the next episode of speech bubble stay beautiful (laughs)
0: Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. We'll meet again. Never Sleeps
1: Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit
0: NeverSleepsNetwork.com.